You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I feel like who art ed? Try to spice it. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it, 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 it works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted Weekly Art History for All Ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. Now, today, I want to look at Victor Vassarelli and op art. Victor Vassarelli was a Hungarian-French artist known for his innovative style and contributions to the op art movement. Many would say he basically gave birth to the op art movement. But let's start with his birth. Vassarelli was born April 9, 1906 in Hungary. Not much is documented about his early life, though it seems his family traveled around Eastern Europe a bit. In 1925, his family moved to Budapest, and he began actually studying medicine, but after two years, he abandoned that for painting. He attended the Muhalai Academy in Budapest. Now, Muhalai, I guess, would translate to workshop. It was a private school run by the avant-garde artist Sandor Bortnik, and some consider that to have been the Hungarian equivalent to the German Bauhaus. Bortnik would give lectures in his apartment, teaching Vassarelli and others about the ideas and the works of Walter Gropius, Piet Mondrian, movements like Distill and Constructivism. It was here that Vassarelli honed his skills and developed his unique approach to art. He also met another aspiring artist, Claire Spinner, and the two of them married, and they wanted to go to Germany, where the Bauhaus and so much artistic innovation was happening, but they were also unsure that going to Germany around 1930 would be a good idea, and I gotta say, I agree. Germany, 1930s, not a great place to be. So because of the major societal problems happening, they opted to move to Paris in 1930. The city's vibrant art scene provided him with a lot of inspiration and opportunities to further his artistic journey. In Paris, he actually worked as a graphic designer before he started making the op art paintings that would make him famous. He basically was just creating advertisements and posters. This experience allowed him to experiment with color, form, and composition, and I think in some ways that laid the foundation for his later work. I think also just conceptually creating work with the audience in mind was probably a big part of that as well. 
while there is a common notion of like the bohemian starving artist struggling to get by Vassarelli was actually quite successful in his commercial artistic design work earning a comfortable living which left him free to explore his ideas without worrying about having to make things that would sell still as he was creating his paintings he did obviously have the audience in mind because op art really only works with a viewer One of Vassarelli's most famous works is Zebra. If you're listening on Spotify, Amazon Music, Good Pods, anywhere that sports episode-specific cover art, you'll see that as the cover art for this episode. But this painting showcases his ability to create optical illusions through the use of black and white stripes. When we look at it from the distance, the stripes appear to almost vibrate, creating a sense of movement. And... This is what really became central to a lot of Vassarelli's work. That sort of vibrant, um, it's actually referred to as the Vassarelli effect. He was creating paintings that seemed kinetic in a lot of ways. And that became sort of the hallmark of his style. The zebra painting is considered to be the first op art painting. So in the 1940s, Vassarelli just went deeper exploring this concept of optical illusions. He was inspired by scientific principles of optics. He developed a style that played with perception and challenged the viewer's understanding of reality. These artworks basically featured just geometric shapes, patterns, contrasting colors, but they created these effects that seemed to move and shift when people were looking at them. Now, Victor Vassarelli's innovative approach to art gained recognition and popularity in the 1950s and 60s. His works were exhibited in prestigious galleries and museums around the world, solidifying his status as a leading figure in the op art movement. He also collaborated with architects and designers, applying his optical illusions to create visually striking environments. While he did have great success professionally, As I said, his work was being displayed in high-end galleries all around the world. I found it interesting that he was tremendously disappointed with one professional setback. He worked really hard to create what he called his alphabet plastique, but it never really took off. To understand this, first of all, I think it's important to define plastic. It's not referring to the material we use in tons of things in our world, but rather like plastic as an adjective, referring to the ability of something to be shaped and molded. Vassarelli came up with something like an artistic compositional alphabet with modular elements that could be rearranged. It was a very geometric, grid-based system that he hoped could spread, creating a visual language, making art accessible to all. And this is where I think it's important to think about op art beyond optics. Also, consider the symbolic power of the movement. Now, first off, I can't believe I've gone this far without defining the term op art. Op art is optical art. It's optical illusions. If you want to learn a little bit more about that, I did an episode of season two in Art Smart. I will link that in the show notes. And when I was younger, I looked at op art as just artists showing off their skill to mess with the viewer's eye. 
I thought it was interesting in what it would show me about technique as far as linear perspective and color theory, but I didn't see much value beyond that. Like most things I casually dismissed, I think I largely missed the point. For one thing, I think it's always important to put art movements in a historical context, as art is a reflection of society in a given time. Op art became really big in the 1950s and 60s. As I think about cultural revolutions happening in the mid to late 20th century, people's fascination with new materials, scientific breakthroughs, along with the emergence of movements like the hippies, it seems totally fitting to have op art with an almost psychedelic effect playing with perceptions. It also makes sense when we consider that each generation seems to innovate by rejecting some aspects of the movements that came before. While a lot of early modern artists developed highly idiosyncratic styles expressing their unique vision of the world, op art was in some ways the opposite. Rather than the artist laying his or her soul bare on the canvas for a viewer to observe, op art was about the viewer's perception rather than the artist's. The viewers are participant whose experience is central to the piece, rather than them being a passive observer. Contrary to my first impressions, Vassarelli was not showing off his great ability to trick the eye, although he was pretty great at tricking the eye. He was more welcoming the viewer to marvel at the power of their own vision and how optics could make a static painting appear to move. It was about questioning perception and reality, but it was inclusive and bringing the viewer in. By focusing on the experience of the viewer, he made art that was immediately accessible to all who saw it. In a way, I see it as very similar to pop art, which seems no coincidence as the two movements sprang up around the same time. In making art that welcomes the viewer as a participant, he circumvents gatekeepers and tastemakers. I mean, you don't need to study to understand op art. Its appeal is evident as soon as you look at it. Although I do appreciate people who study art and who listen to people pontificating about the power and the magistry of arts and the significance of art history and all of that through totally adequate podcasts. Still, I always respect a democratic movement. In making art that is so immediately accessible, he's implicitly sending a message about his values and priorities, that art is for everyone. And I would dare say art podcasts are for everyone. So please do me a favor. Help others discover the joy of exploring visual arts in an audio medium. Tell your friends about the show. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.